Good morning. Glad, to see, good to see everyone here this morning. It's time for us to begin our Bible study together, and we've been talking about basics of Christianity, things that new Christians might want to know, uh, do need to know, and so we're building on this discipleship path that Jay set us on last quarter, and building on that. And again, remember Jesus said, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, and teaching them to observe everything I have taught you. And so that's what we've been talking about in our Bible class uh, for the past few weeks. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what does it mean to be a member of a body of Christ, of of a church that belongs to Christ. And so we've talked about that last couple of weeks. Uh, and we, last week we spent a good deal of time in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Today we're going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 14 as well, but we're shifting topics. And what we're talking about this morning is worship. What is our authority for worship? Uh, what do we do in worship? What is worship? And so worship is a, is a term we use quite a bit, and I'm not sure that that we always use it in the right way or maybe have a complete understanding of worship. So some of you have known me for a while and you've heard me talk about worship in the past. So those of you that may remember or maybe someone else who already knows, where, where do we get this word worship? Where does it come from? Anyone know? Okay. I don't see any hands going up. I don't see uh, anybody just jumping up, raving, waving their hands back and forth. Hey, sorry. Okay. In the Greek Bible, the Greek New Testament, the word is proskuneo. And this was actually a word that the Greeks borrowed from the Persians. But proskuneo literally means to bow yourself, prostrate, prostrate, always get those wrong, Uh, prostrate on the ground, literally with your face on the ground at somebody's feet, either kissing their feet or kissing the ground at their feet. Uh, And the Persians used that word, and that's what you would do if a king or someone of higher rank than you uh, were to present themselves, you were to be in their presence, that's what you would do. And so that, that's kind of the idea of worship. It's paying respect, it's paying homage, it's paying reverence to someone. And so there's a, a great passage in Psalm 95, which talks about the idea of worship and the attitude of, of worship. So we're going to read Psalm 95. And as we read Psalm 95, we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In whose hands are the depths of the earth, and the peaks of the mountains are his, are his also. The sea is his, for, he is, uh, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. And so the last half of this passage seems a little bit out of place for us, but it actually fits in nicely to what the psalmist is saying. But as we back up and we break down this passage, in verses 1 and 2, there's one attitude or one key component of worship. What is it? What, what do you see in verses 1 and 2? What attitude ought we to bring to our worship? Okay, so there's an idea of joy and singing. Okay? And what is the reason for that joy and that singing? Thanksgiving? Okay. Thanksgiving because of who God is, right? So who is it about God or who is God? Actually, that's in verses 3 and 4. But who is, what aspect of God is it that these people are able to sing and have joy about? He's the king. Okay, what else? He is the rock of their salvation, the redeemer. Okay. What else? Look at verse 5. He made it all. Okay. So there's a couple different aspects to this idea of thanksgiving. Number one, uh, he is the rock of our salvation. So when you hear that phrase that God is the rock of our salvation, what does that mean? What is that saying? Is he talking about a little pebble that you pick up, a little pea gravel maybe that you have on your driveway? Yeah, a boulder, something substantive, right? Okay, so we live in Texas, and we have those nice slab foundations because our soil doesn't let us have just uh, the pier and beam, right? So think about a big slab that is the foundation that everything is built on. It says, he is the rock of our salvation, something that you can cling to, something that you can anchor yourself to. Uh, he is the base of our salvation. He is the source of our salvation. Now, for the Israelites who are reading this psalm, singing this psalm, maybe, did they have the same kind of salvation that we do? Was their concept of salvation the same concept of salvation that we have today? Jay, you're shaking your head no. Why? Absolutely. And especially for the Israelites, who was the great enemy of their past? 
that they were able to get freedom from? Egypt, right? So they, God provided them a way to come out of that slavery in Egypt to have their own kingdom, to have their own, their own life, okay? And so they're thankful for that. So if they were, if they were, were thankful for that, as Christians, as we look at this psalm, how does this relate to us in terms of our thanksgiving, our joy? Absolutely. Okay, and so we have that freedom from sin. We've been redeemed out of that sin, brought out of that sin. We have our freedom from that. And we ought to be able to be joyful about that, right? And, and to be thankful for that. Okay, so the first thing we see in Psalm 95 is the attitude of worship that says, I'm going to be thankful to God because of what he has done, but I'm also, in terms of my salvation, but also... It says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully with psalms for, because, verse 3, the Lord is a great God. He's a great king above all gods. So there's a claim about him. He's a great king. He's the one true God above all other gods that might, ex that might be worshipped in the world. Verse 4, in whose hands are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So what is this saying? What is this saying to us, first of all, about God? He gives us all. Okay, he gives us all. What do you mean, what do you mean by that, Linda? Yes, I, he gives us the physical life. He gives us spiritual life. Okay, he, he's all-encompassing. Okay, anyone else? Okay. Absolutely. And so we can be thankful that we can have joy because here is this great God, right? So I think everything Bill is saying is, is right on. I think everything Linda's saying is true and accurate. Uh, but if we dig a little bit deeper here in the context, uh, I think really pulling out what, what Bill mentioned, the Israelites lived in a social context with the neighbors around them, the other nations around them, that they had a God for the ocean. They had a God for the sky. They had a God for the ground. And that God may or may not be, uh, have a disposition to help you. And so you might sacrifice your children. You might sacrifice something important to you just to appease that God, just in the hope that he's going to give you good weather for your crops or he's going to give you good fertility in the earth for your crops. And they had everything compartmentalized as far as the gods that they worshipped. But the psalmist is saying, we worship a great God because he made the mountains, he made the sea, he made everything, 
And like Bill said, he's concerned for you. You don't have to try to appease him by doing all these things. That's not to say there aren't things that we need to do to be obedient to God. But I don't have to do all these things to get God to be concerned for me. He was concerned for me first, even though he's this great God. And because of that, I can sing joyfully and yet thankfully. Okay, so that's one attitude that we see in worship, or I guess you could say there's two, joy and thankful. As we come down into verse 6, 6 and 7, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Okay? And so now he says, let us bow down and worship. So what imagery do you get in your mind as you look at verse 6? What is that imagery? Bowing down and worshiping. What does that look like? physically look like? Yeah, absolutely. Bowing down and showing this reverence, this respect. Okay? So, uh, you know, we can think, we can pick on Ozzy and Stephanie for a moment. Ozzy, when you go home today, is Stephanie going to bow down and kiss, kiss your feet this, this afternoon? She's not, she's not going to do that for you? No? Kimberly's not going to do that for me either. Devonna, you going to do that with Jay? Okay. And, and yet, that's the imagery that we have. And so on the one hand, the psalmist is saying, come to God with joy and thanksgiving, and yet also come to him with deep reverence and respect and showing honor and homage. Can you do both of those things at the same time? How do you do both of those things at the same time? Some of you are nodding your heads, but how do you do that? We've got a long time before worship starts, guys. Okay, acknowledge and praise God. And what was the last part? Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledge him for who he is. Okay, so you can kind of beat somebody in submission, can't you? And mistreat them, train them until they do what you want. But this is an attitude that I'm bringing to my worship. That is to say, I'm looking at God and I'm noticing, look how awesome God is. Look at all the things he's done, and yet he loves me and cares for me. He's using all his greatness to take care of me. Now, it's kind of like if you were best friends with LeBron James or maybe Shaquille O'Neal, and, you know, you're a little scrawny guy. Maybe you wear glasses and you look a little geeky, okay? Uh, And you go to school, and maybe there's some big kids around you that want to pick on you and stuff. But here comes Shaquille, uh, Shaquille O'Neal or LeBron James. Who's going to pick on you, right? Not why those guys are around. If they're their, your friends and they're taking care of you. Okay, and here's this greatness taking care of you. That greatness could either be against you, could be indifferent to you, or it could befriend you and care for you and take care of you. 
and that's what God is, right? Uh, he's using his greatness, his goodness, his purity, his might to take care of us. And because of that, I've, you know, I've got to acknowledge his awesomeness. I've got to acknowledge his, his greatness. Uh, and there's a certain amount of reverence and respect that goes into that, and yet I can also be joyful as I do that. So how does that relate to our attitude that we bring to worship as Christians? Love for God? Okay. All right. Yeah, I think that's true. We have to have love. We need to have love for God and for others. What does that look like in terms of how I worship? Okay, so Jay's sick this morning. He was sick yesterday. Bill's singing for us in, in worship. Uh, as we sang those songs, how does, what does that look like for my worship? Nancy's not getting up here moving her arms around, directing the songs, right? And so how does, what does it look like for Nancy? She's sitting there in a chair, and somebody else is leading songs. How do I have respect, reverence, homage, and yet thanksgiving and joy at the same time? We need to look at the words and the message there. Nancy, was that a, I want to say something, Cy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think song is a way for us to express ourselves without, you know, everybody, you know, like we would at a football game, you know, hooping and hollering and cheering. But song sort of lets out a lot of emotion. Absolutely. Okay. If we sing like we, like we mean it, as opposed to, maybe I can't believe this guy's leading this song again. We just sang this a couple weeks ago, meaning I, you know, I hate this song. I wish we would have more of this kind of song instead of this kind of song. We can fill our minds with all sorts of negative things that take us away from having joy, having emotion good emotion, having respect and reverence as we sing to God, right? And uh, sometimes there's a struggle because all of us, you know, all of us have our favorites, right? Uh, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, my mom would, would sing songs out of the, the hymnals that she had and that sort of thing, and uh, those, I, those songs mean a lot to me. Uh, I sing them for my kids, and they tell me, to, they ask me to, Dad, please don't sing anymore, okay? Uh, 
you know, but uh, we all have songs that maybe mean more to us than others, and we can get so caught up in we need more of this, less of this, or, or whatever, that we miss what we are doing. Uh, so much focus many times in a public worship setting is on the person leading a particular aspect of worship rather than what I'm bringing to the worship service. Right? Okay, so let's look at the last few verses here of Psalm 95. And notice, first of all, that really this uh, closing section begins uh, in verse 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, last sentence in verse 7. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. So the context of the last few verses is looking back as God brought them out of Egypt. Now remember, they, the psalmist just said, let us sing for joy for the rock of our salvation, the one who brought us out of Egypt, gave us freedom, uh, brought us out of that bondage. And yet, at the end of the psalm, he's remembering how as they were coming out of Egypt and on their way to uh, the promised land, they constantly complained. And Riba at Massah, uh, that was one of the places where they complained because there wasn't water. And the water, God made the water spring up uh, like bitter water. Maybe there's already bitter water there. I've got to remember here. There's already, the water was bitter, and they complained. They couldn't drink it, uh, and they complained uh, to God. They did not trust God. And as a result of that, God chastised them. Okay? And yet he still gave them good water to drink. But the psalmist is saying, recording the words of God, they don't know my works. They don't know me, even though they've seen my works. I mean, can you imagine being an Israelite? As you're coming out of Egypt, you have seen the plagues of Egypt. You've seen how God has made the Nile bloody. You've seen how God brought flies on the land, frogs on the land. You've seen how God has brought hell and locusts on the land. Uh, you've seen how God parted the waters of the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army. You've seen how God was a, a pillar of fire during the night and a, and a cloud during the day uh, to protect you. You've seen all that. And you still doubt that he's going to take care of you. That he's going to make sure you have food and water and care for you so that you rebel against him. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. So it's not some outside idea that somebody throws in at the end of Psalm 95. To me, it all flows. Because the psalmist is saying, when we come to worship God, we need to be thankful and joyful, acknowledging what he's done for us, and we need to be, at the same time, respectful and reverent, knowing his greatness, and be humble in our attitude without doubting that he continues to take 
So sometimes when we're in worship and we have uh, these moments where we're tempted to complain, that guy prays too long, that guy prays too short, that guy prays too fast, that guy prays too slow, this guy uses all these phrases. You know, uh, in Tennessee, you know, I don't hear it so much down, down here, but in Tennessee, everyone prayed, guide, guard, and direct us, you know. Bill, have you heard that before? Okay. You know, and, you know, that phrase is almost ad nauseum. And sometimes when I'm leading in worship, I need to stop and think, am I just using cliches that I'm used to hearing? But by the same time, I need to also not just pick out every little thing in worship that I don't like. Because when I do that, aren't I kind of like the Israelites who complained and rebelled against God? And so I need to think about, as we think about worship, as a participant in worship, what is my attitude? What's my purpose here? What's my purpose? Does anyone have any questions or comments before we go on? Okay. Some of you look like you're deep in thought, but you're not raising your hand, so I'm not going to question you. But he still took care of them. Yeah. And he still loved them, and he still, you know, um, gave them what they needed. Um, in verse 7, where it talks about, you know, the sheep sitting on his mm. shepherd. And, you know, um, just because we annoy God sometimes doesn't yeah. mean that he is, um, just because we mess up or whatever, he's, he's always been good to us. Yeah. We are his. Yeah. Absolutely. I dropped the ball on that one. Yeah. The idea of the, of the shepherd leading, you know, and the sheep follow the shepherd. And the shepherd continues to take care of the sheep. I can't imagine being a shepherd and just listening to all those bad, you know, every, every two seconds. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I've not been around sheep a whole lot. Yeah, my experience being around sheep is at the fair. You know, you look at them, they're cute, and then you move on, right? But I can't imagine all day, you know. You know, and you read stories of the Old West where the cattlemen, you know, were in, were in battles with the sheep herders because they were stinky, you know, and uh, all that all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, he, he continued to take care of them. Now, there's a generation that couldn't enter the rest because they continued to rebel against God, even after the situation at Marabah and Massah, uh, you know, the ones that denied going into the, can to the, to the promised land because of the 12 spies in Numbers chapter 10, I believe it is. Uh, but he still continued to provide for them and, and care for them. Uh, you know, I'm from the Northwest, and uh, it's beautiful up there, you know, and you've got mountains and trees, and, you know, I've got I've to stop myself. I'll always, you know, I've got to stop and think about Israel and think, wait a minute, am I complaining again, you know, too much? You know, I'm looking for that land. Am I complaining again? You know, and so, uh, but yeah, we have to come to this attitude of humility to what God has done for us and yet be joyful. You know, it's like having that big friend that's always going to take care of you, you know, but yet you respect that greatness that they have, you know. All right, so uh, we have a little bit of time left. Let's flip over to. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and as we flip to the New Testament, okay, so Psalm 95, 
kind of explains an attitude of worship that the Israelites were to have. And I believe we ought to carry that. That gives us a good example, maybe, uh, for what we might want to carry over as Christians. Sometimes we think, especially if you're a new Christian or you're studying the Bible for the first time, you think, ah, there's going to be a great passage uh, in the New Testament somewhere that says this is the order of worship. And you start out with three songs and then you have a prayer or whatever. And the reality is, when you get to the New Testament, there's not a whole lot. And so, you know, we need to be careful about saying, you know, things need to be a, a certain way because there's not a whole lot. And yet there are some nuggets or some sections in the New Testament that give us, give us hints. Okay? So remember, as we were looking at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 over the last couple of weeks, remember we were looking at it from the perspective of Paul's addressing the fact that there's division in the church and that division surrounds the fact that there are people that have different talents and yet they all need to work together. And so chapter 14 is within that context. But as Paul is talking, uh, uh, he says here that as a church, there are things that we ought to do uh, it, to maintain order in worship. Okay. And this is probably one of the best passages that gives us maybe a snapshot of what their worship may have been like in the first century. Okay? Uh, let me see. Devana, do you mind reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through... Yeah, all the way through verse 40, please. Thank you. Okay, so there are a lot of different scholars from a lot of different backgrounds that when they read this section, they say that maybe you get the impression that at Corinth, because you had all these divisions that existed, because people had different gifts, that maybe their worship service was becoming a little bit chaotic. Uh, someone would say, oh, I've got a, I've got a message uh, that's coming to me uh, in German. Now, they wouldn't call it German. They would call it barber, barbarism, uh, barbaric, uh, because that's what Germans sounded like to the Romans. The Romans called the Germans uh, barbarians, okay? Um, 
or some other language. And Paul, and, and they were apparently standing up and causing confusion in the church. And Paul said, look, if you are able to speak in that tongue, but you don't have any Germans here, it's not doing you any good. Sit down, be quiet. And by the same time, you had people that were prophesying, so they were prophesying in the language of, of the Corinthians. And maybe there were multiple people that were receiving prophecies, and they were standing up and, and giving their prophecies. And it was chaotic. Uh, Paul says, uh, you know, one guy was coming in with a lesson, another guy was coming in with a lesson. Uh, someone was coming in with a psalm, which is interesting. Now, does that mean they were coming in to sing the psalm or to teach the psalm? We'll get to that in just a second. But you had different people coming in with a teaching or a psalm, and everyone was wanting to do their own thing. And that seems to be the context of chapter 14, beginning in verse 26 here. Okay? And so there's a couple things about worship as we look at chapter 14, verse 26 following. First is, we see that as they assembled, notice again the way it reads. New American Standard says, what is the outcome? When you assemble. I think Devana's translation said, when you come together. Okay? And so they got, first thing that we notice is they came together regularly. And again, when you put that together with chapter 16, it seems like they got together weekly. On the first day of every week, when you come together. Okay? So they were getting together on a regular basis for worship. What did they do in their worship? Well, apparently, according to chapter 14 and verse 26, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. It says, let all things be done for edification. So teaching apparently was a big part of what they did. Because think about what those three things are. Teaching, revelation or prophecy, and a speaking in tongue. All of those have to do with teaching of some sort. A prophecy is a message from God. Uh, speaking in tongues was the same thing, only in a different language that you're miraculously able to speak now okay whether that's Spanish or German or Italian or whatever okay and then the idea of having a song in in the tradition of the synagogue and even of the first century uh, typically when you would come in for worship in, in a Jewish setting someone would read a passage either from the Psalms or from the law from the Pentateuch or the Psalms, and then they would give a sermon on that passage. And so it could be that Paul is talking about reading a psalm from the book of Psalms. There are also others who say that maybe this is talking about someone who has written a song to be sung in the church. Okay? I lean towards the reading of the psalm because that seems to be what they did in the Jewish synagogue. That fits the pattern uh, of what was done in, in, in worship of the first century. Uh, outside of the church, what we know of Jewish tradition, okay? But be that as it may, these are the things that we see them doing in the church. Now, so that's one aspect of, of Christian worship. Um, if we flip over to the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, look at verse 13. <clears throat> Now let's start in verse 11. Paul says, If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and to the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. 
So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound in the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What then is the outcome? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen? At your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. For if you are giving thanks well enough, the other person is not edified. Notice that in verse 17. The other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I might instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, the broad context of what Paul's talking about is don't be upset because someone has the gift of speaking in tongues and you don't. And he's addressing the idea of different gifts. But what we see here is that evidently as they came together, as we saw in chapter 14 and verse 26, we see also here in these verses in the same chapter that as they came together, they were also singing and they were praying. And Paul's saying, it doesn't do me any good to sing in a different language or to pray in a different language. If I can't interpret it myself, it doesn't even do me good, let alone the other people that are hearing it. Notice again the other person in verse 17. So I think the context of chapter 14 is they're coming together for worship, and it gives us a snapshot. They were singing, they were praying, uh, and they were teaching. And Paul says everything that is done needs to be done for the edification of the church. Now, last week we talked about the fact that that word edify uh, isn't the term that we got to using in the 1980s. Okay, which meant everyone goes out of the room feeling, yay! You know, that's kind of the way we use the word edify in the 80s. That was kind of the church fad back then. The word edify means to build. To build. Think about sometimes you see buildings or you see a structure. uh, And if you're a geeky engineer type guy, sorry, Bill, uh, you're not a geeky guy. You got to be careful with the father in law, right? Okay. Uh, but if you're one, uh, you know, an engineer type guy, uh, you might call that an edifice, because that's the word edify, edifice, to build. And what Paul's saying is, everything that you do in the church, in the worship service, needs to be done to build the church, not to make one or two people happy. Not to make sure that everyone runs out of the building saying, yay, you know. There's nothing wrong with people being happy when they leave the church building. But we miss what Paul's saying. He's saying things need to be done in such a way that people are built up spiritually. They are growing spiritually. They are being built up as Christians. Okay? Anyone have a question or comment on that? Mm-hmm. And, and everybody's doing the 
better in our lives? How do we encourage each other to know more about God and what God wants to do? Absolutely. How do we encourage each other to, uh, to you know, we teach each other the songs? Well, we mm-hmm. all sing the same song. We're not singing one song on the left side and another song on the right side. We're all singing the same song. Absolutely. So encouraging each other to do that song and building each other up and building up the church. Oh, and by the way, while we're here, we share the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, while we're here, we give. Absolutely. A little different, I think, in my opinion, a little different than the focus that we saw in uh, Psalm was mm-hmm. That was all. That was all about God. Mm-hmm. That worship in that context mm-hmm. was all about submission to God, and it was all about thanksgiving to God. Mm-hmm. Well, those are good things for us to teach each other and encourage right. each other while we're here. But in Christian worship, I think the focus is a little different. Mm-hmm. All about strengthening each other. Do what God wants to do. And Absolutely. Of course God wants us to be submit to Him and to be humble before Him and to praise Him and thank Him. But, but uh, that's the passage here that you just pointed out. It was a little doing, a little different. I think yeah. a different direction. That, yeah. That Christians are are forced, you know, are instructed. Mm-hmm. Paul says, "What you guys are doing is so confusing and so disorganized mm-hmm. and so." I don't know what those are. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but our focus is here. We're going to focus on, and I think what you did today is a great lesson. Yeah. You know, we focus on, okay, what do we do when we come together as Christians? Come together to thank each other and praise God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So Bill's right. You know, our, our focus, as we look here in 1 Corinthians 14, is to build the church up, to strengthen the, the church. So I think next week when we get into some other passages in, in Ephesians and Colossians that talk about our singing, uh, Paul talks about making, you know, singing with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And so I think that's our tie-in with Psalm 95 in that attitude to God. And so we can do all these things. And if we're worshiping with the right attitude and building each other up, you see, if I'm not humble and I forget what God's done for me, then I come into worship, and it's all about me. And that's what it's not about. And Bill's right. You know, Paul says here, the things that you do as a church need to build the church and strengthen it. Uh, the bell has rung. I'm really tempted to go on because we need to talk about uh, the ladies' issue. Uh, we'll pick that up next week. Uh, but since we read it in the context, the context is all these sporadic things going on in the worship service. And there are many scholars who believe that what you had in the first century is that the men were educated typically more so than the women and it was customary for women to loudly ask their husbands what what are we doing this for and that sort of thing and if that was going on in in the church as in other places in culture it might have created some confusion in the church and maybe that's what Paul's talking about when he says ask your husbands at home so we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit next week as we continue talking about worship thank you very much and we'll get worship here in a few minutes.